Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Get Clean Podcast. I'm your host, Khalil Sharad, and this is episode 41. In this episode, I will be interviewing Matt Winning. Matt is a multiple world record holder in powerlifting. He has a master's in biomechanics. He's an advisor and strength coach for special forces units, special forces units, border patrol, fire services, and SWAT teams. He owns his own gym called Lucas Magus Gym in Ohio, and he has uh, many different pieces of equipment. One of them being my favorite that we have at the rack here, uh, his belt squat. Uh, you can attach bands on it, plate loaded. Feels very similar to a regular free squat, but the nature of that thick belt pulling you straight down puts you in that proper position so it's brutal on the legs but it feels a lot more like a free squat so you know if you're a gear lifter or you know if you have athletes i really recommend that piece of uh, machinery um another one of his piece of equipment i definitely would want to get is his uh good morning machine um so without further ado let's get clean what's up dude hey how you doing good how are you can you hear me yeah i can hear you i'm good Cool, cool. What's happening, man? <laughs> nothing much. Nothing much. Just trying to figure out all this shit. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't do these a whole lot because it's just a pain in the ass. Everybody has a different browser. And app. I'm just like, bro, I just want to fucking train. <laughs> <laughs> like, I got my computer recording because my computer ain't got enough space. So I'm recording the sound and then I'm screen recording the picture. But I'm probably just going to be uploading the the audio part anyway, because that's the only thing I do for my podcast. I don't do, I usually don't do any video, um, just because the video adds a whole nother element that I'm not good at. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so how, 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 how's your day going? Oh, dude, super long. You know, the gym's crazy, and with all the online stuff we got going on now, it's just, it's just keeping me, like, nonstop from, like, Seven in the morning to like five, six at night, and then I'm still training my ass off, you know. Oh, really? It's one of those things I bit off pretty bad, though, because once I pretty much retired from competing in the end of 2017, I, I realized that I had to kick the business into high gear if I wanted to work till I was maybe, you know, 50 and then retire. Right. So I really had to step up the equipment side of things and the manual side of things and get a lot of stuff done. And then COVID hit. So then we had to switch a lot of business preparation on to online stuff and online coaching. Um, and then that exploded. Right. And then you know, we went from having maybe 30 online clients to nearly 100 oh, in right. like eight months. So, um, you know, all that being said, it's just been crazy. I mean, it's good. You know, it could be worse. It could be the other way around. But right. we uh, changed the changes the game a little bit, you know. How, how is that like, do you do all the, I'm sure you don't do all the programming yourself, so do you have a team of guys? Like, how does that work? I have guys that are as, well, I wouldn't say physically as far as lifting credentials, but educational credentials are very, very high. We have three other guys that are coaches on the website that all have at least master's degrees, and some of them have a master's DSDS or CSDCS. You have to be in college strength and conditioning for at least 15 years to even apply for that master program, which is just crazy. So wow. we got the head coach for, for track at University of Kansas, and then we have an ex-retired NFL football player that started the entire strength program at a Division One school. Oh, okay. Um, we got some heavy hitters on the online coaching. And, and do each of them, like I'm, I'm guessing like the NFL guy, does he deal with a lot of sport athletes? And, like, do you guys divvy it up? No, 
people just want to get better and want to do okay. it smarter and not get injured. Right. Um, we try to take on all kinds of different avenues. And what's, what's interesting is, you know, a lot of times the non-pro athletes or the non, the people that are just trying to get better and they're at the lower level genetically end up teaching you and learning more than they, you teach them because, mm-hmm. you know, some people getting up to a three or four, maybe even 500 pound bench is nearly impossible. Whereas a pro athlete, if you have those NFL kind of like pedigree genetics, if you're training semi smart, you're going to be super strong. Yeah. Those guys are just, those guys are just freaks. So <laughs> for me, it's, it's one of those things where it's, I like the challenge of, pretty much anything and that's probably what set me apart from a lot of other people hmm. and then um what do you what is the goal like when you said like you oh you want to retire by 50 like is it just being like you have somebody else running the day-to-day and you're more the face or is it literally like you get to just kind of train in your own gym and you just living off of the money that's making its own money yeah when i start i mean and having enough money in the in the accounts where i can just i can coast if i want to i really yeah honestly just really enjoy training and you start to realize the longer that you're in this the only person you really have to truly experiment on is yourself mm-hmm. because everybody else is not dependable you know mm-hmm. like I mean we have shit I got 25 clients in the gym most of them have been under my tutelage for at least two to four years and you start realizing the amount of control you really just don't have <laughs> you know and the thing of it is, is, everybody wants to be you or hit your numbers, but they don't realize what it takes both in and outside of the gym every day in order to get to that level. Right. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where everybody feels like it's nice. And it's just, it's, it's gotten hard for me the last few years of just really deal, dealing with mediocre people and mediocre mindsets. Hmm. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying that everybody has to be a champion, but. The mindset, is that is that the biggest thing, yeah. the mindset? If you heard the amount of excuses and bullshit that I hear on a daily basis, you would just get tired for 25 years, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I feel like, too, it's like, um, I'm just outside looking in, but it, I just feel like if I was training with you, and I, you know, you training how you've been, you trained at Westside, like, and now you run your own gym, why would you even go to Matt Winning Gym and be a little pussy? Like, I, you already know how it's going to be, like, don't come with excuses. I can already imagine how it is, like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the worst part about it is people really don't realize that I came from having broken legs right. and being, you know, behind the behind the eight ball because of that my entire pre-teen and teen years and worked my way all the way up to breaking world records in squats. Right. And you got somebody that's coming to you and they say that their back's tweaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, I mean, but, you know, it just doesn't matter. People don't realize that, you know, and... and the other thing that really starts to get you is like, I would say the last thing that I would cut from myself, right? You know, money aside, all this other stuff. The last thing that I would put on the back burner or mm-hmm. let something else get in front of would not be lifting. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, like I get up and go train and that's how it is. I mean, you could tell me, hey, Matt, well, you want to make another half a million dollars a year, but you have to stop training. I'm going to tell you to fuck off. <laughs> but almost every one of my clients or anybody I train, there's no way that they would gamble that. They don't, they don't have the same importance level for me. So it's one of those things where, yeah, if my assistants and other people can start to take over a little bit more of the day to day processes, that'd be great. But I, I just start to realize that I'm just, I'm kind of more of a loner just based on the fact of not the stuff that I've done. It's just the mindset that I have. And you start realizing that 
everybody's a talk game, but to actually be that is a completely different mindset. And uh, you'd be surprised at how many people just don't have it. You know what I mean? How did you um, came to own your own actual gym? Well, I mean, a lot of that came from me and Louie not getting along. I yeah. mean, you know, so when I first moved over here, I had $500 in my checking account. Um, I didn't have a whole lot. I was, uh, you know, I'd already squatted 900 pounds, and I was in graduate school doing that. So I was, you know, where I went to graduate school was a very difficult school with a lot of founders of the Western Strength Conditioning Associations. Um, so we did we didn't fuck around in, in college or, or, or graduate school. We had to put out quality information. With that being said, you know, schooling was really, really hard, and I was still making the sacrifices to drive two and a half hours one way to go train at Louis' gym and come Jeez. home when I, was, when I was in college. But when I moved over here full-time, I didn't have a lot of money because I was paying for school out of my own pocket. And, um, you know, once you come over full-time, Louis' expectation of what you should be is heavily accelerated. You know, I think most people get a better sense of what Louis should be when they visit and mm-hmm. a worse sense of what he really is when you're there for right, the time. Right. Um, you know, and like I said, I'm not taking anything away from him. I learned a lot from him at that <laughs> right. time. But what what I never realized is that, you know, that's where Louis like loyalty stuff ends. I mean, a lot of the reason me and him got into it a lot was because I was getting ready to take a job from the, the Cleveland Browns. Mm-hmm. So I was actually going to get hired as one of the main assistants to Cleveland Browns like right out of graduate school. And he took that as I didn't take lifting seriously. <laughs> right. and, you know, and I'm like, what do you want me to do, dude? It's $125,000 a year. I'm right out of school. I get to go literally at that time when when Buddy Morris was at the Cleveland Browns, right, yeah. which is another guy. Uh, they had the best strength conditioning program in the NFL. Right. So that was the big break that I needed to get into the league. And uh, long story short, I never worked a day. So the entire staff got fired before I even got in. And I started to realize, I'm like, you know what, fuck that. I'm like, if I'm going to if I'm gonna fail, I'm going to fail because it's my fault. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fail because it's something I had to go through or do. So that point in time, I decided I was going to go private. And uh, that started by training clients and then training a handful of NFL guys, um, you know, and training people at Louie's gym. And... Uh, once Louie and I fragmented, I realized that I needed to have my own facility that, you know, if I had a problem or dispute with someone over something, that it was still all my equipment and all my way. Mm. So 2008, 9, 10, I started buying and accumulating equipment. And uh, 2010, the, the gym opens around, I want to say July, so it's been about 11 years now. Um, and... Uh, now, that was the best move I ever could have made because it made me learn how to be a businessman. It made me learn how to uh, make money at what I had a passion on, which was also a detriment because you come into, you know, I think when you're in school or you're, you're starting to think, hey, man, it'd be fun to do like what Matt does. What you don't realize is when you mix your passion with other people's hobbies, it's a bad situation. Right. Now, I'll be case in point. I mean, look on my Instagram. Look how many people can't read the first page. If you want me to answer a question, all I'm asking you to do is go on the donation thing and, and pay five bucks a month to be on my Patreon. Yeah. And you can ask me what you want. <laughs> people act like I'm killing them to do it. I'm like, when's the last time you called the doctor and set up an appointment and it was free? <laughs> right, right. But see, the point is, is even though I have a degree right under a doctor, you know, people don't look at me because it's, it's their hobby. It's not mm. their profession. Right. 
You know, it's like, I don't know what you do for work, but I wouldn't ask you to come over if you were a plumber and fix my shit, yeah. you know, fix my toilet and not pay you just because I need a favor. <laughs> right, right. That's what you find is the problem with lifting and strength conditioning is it's a lot of people's hobbies, but they don't look at it as other people's professions. And that's why I started to do that because I started to realize that the people that were paying me, even if it was small amounts a month, were actually taking my advice and using it versus just doing it for free. I learned that from Charles Poliquin when he's talked a lot about when people give you free information, to them it's valueless. Now, to us that truly have a love for the sport or what we do, it's different, but you don't know that. You can't decide for everyone. So that's why Charles Poliquin put a lot of his stuff behind paywalls was because he valued his time and his experience. After that point, I started to realize that I was disrespecting myself by handing out all this free shit and not expecting people to, you know, tr- be valuable of my time. So long story short is that's kind of what set that down the road. That's what started the gym. That's did you start in the, the when you were getting the equipment, did you start in the, in your, like your garage and then you got it, got the gym? Like how did that, how did it no, work? From- we trained a bunch of athletes at Louie's place. Oh, and okay. then a friend of mine had a gym when me and Louie had to fall out that we, me and Chuck Vogelpool and everybody went and trained at. Right. It's called Lexan. We so we were we were the the, the uh, extreme team was what we called ourselves. It was me, Chuck Vogelpool, another kid named Chuck Fought, which was one of the youngest guys to ever go with nine hundred pounds. Um, we all trained together. Then I trained people when we got done working out. Hmm. At that time, I had started developing all my equipment and putting it in storages. Oh. And then once I had enough, I opened up my own facility for my clients. Oh, okay, okay. How did you come up with the idea? I mean, I, I don't know the order of all the belt squats that have been created, but how did you, it, what version of your belt squat, like, because the one we have at the rack, I feel like it's number two, you released one, like, soon after the one we got, but, like, what was the process of going from, like, Louis just the athletic training platform, which is kind of difficult to squat in, to developing yours? Like, did you see, was the pitch shark already out? Like, how did you come to your, your, your belt squat? the pit shark once before but I realized that the leverages were way off right so first time I ever worked out on a pit shark I did a thousand pounds on it for like 10 <laughs> that's I mean I know I'm strong but I'm not that strong <laughs> right. so I went back to the drawing board with my biomechanical background I had a handful of steel left over at the, at the facility I also had learned from Louis platform system that we were constantly having problems with the cables and the pulleys right and if you're strong enough, you end up breaking them, wearing them out, and then the machine's constantly being flipped over and repaired. So I knew there had to be some, tor- some type of a leverage system that would never break. Mm. So that was one thing I knew it had to have. The next thing was I knew that it had to be insanely strong, and, then I, and I knew that the leverages had to be close to a one-to-one ratio. So it took me a while of playing with it using heavy game gear scales to figure out, mm. okay, this actually weighs 55 pounds and it weighs 135 Etc. Etc. So that that way I knew whatever was on the belt was exactly what was on the the machine. Hmm. Um, so that took about six months in my free time, just playing around with it. And I already could weld because I was a welder's assistant and at the hospital when I was going into undergraduate. Oh, okay. So I paid through for college being a welder. So I was pretty proficient at welding and cutting and and doing things of that nature. Um, so the long story short was, I would say 2012, 
we get the first machine comes out of my garage. We end up breaking it within a month. So there's <laughs> certain spots that I just didn't calculate was strong or weak enough. So we fixed those. Then we fixed a couple other pieces. And then all of a sudden we had a first generation system. The hard part was that I knew that I couldn't make them on my own fast enough. So I started to look around for builders. And the first builder that I had was my uncle. And he built gas tankers for marathons. So the big semis you see with gasoline on and he made them. So he made the first rounds of the bell squats, but he couldn't keep up with the orders quick enough because no. his contracts were in these big tankers. Right. So I'm back to kind of almost square one where I'm almost like, fuck it, I don't want to sell equipment because this is a pain in the ass. Mm. And this podunk kid from like an hour north of here is following me on Instagram. I'm posting some videos of me bell squatting, and he's like, hey, man, you know, we run a, a tubular welding facility up here and we can powder coat and make them and we can do everything you want if you want to send me a prototype let us design one for you and let's see if you like it and if you do maybe we can talk about having you uh come in with us and we'll, we'll build your stuff so you know it was a little risky at first because i'm like man i don't want to give this guy my my designs i don't right. know him but he was like a super fan his name's hunter and he was also a pretty avid lifter he wasn't as strong as me but he was strong for his size he was a really good welder and, and all that. And he brings him back this machine, which is like the Gen 2. Mm. And it's stronger. He put it under pressure testing and figured out where it was going to break. Oh, fixed wow. those areas, made it stronger, made it better. And then also kept detailed records of how to make a jig for it, which basically allows you to build it very, very quickly. Because now the machine fits on the table and you cut the pieces to fit the table and it, it just makes it for you. It doesn't oh, make wow. it for you. But it gives you the, the standards of which every machine needs to be. So the equipment side starts to take off a little bit, but my website's not insanely crazy yet. Mm. So long story short, we start putting more money and time and investing in the website. By 2015, we got calls from the Carolina Panthers, Philadelphia Eagles. Are they using it now? Yeah, so oh, the wow. Eagles have them, the Bengals have them, the Panthers have them, the Chiefs have them. The Lakers have three of them. The Lakers have, hey, there you go. Yeah, okay. The Nooks have two of them. University of Kansas has six of them. Um, Princeton has three of them. I, 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 I don't remember all the rest, but there's a lot. Um, so we start, we get the Gen 3 out maybe around 2015, 16, and then Stan Efforting gets the Gen 3. And he starts posting quite a bit of videos and all the little stuff he's doing on it, blah, blah, blah. Um, so about a year and a half later, which was about 2017, 18, we launched the Gen 4, which had the split in the middle. And that allowed more range of motion, and we right. didn't have to dig the, the floor plate, and Mike Gohern wanted one right. for his garage gym. So I shipped him out one. He posted quite a few videos on it. Um, and then Jay Cutler got one. So it started to kind of become, all right, well, we started building stuff, and we always did from the beginning with U.S.-made Alro steel. Um, you know, we powder-coated it in a heated oven. So the fit and finish and the material quality was just so far above anybody else's shit that they were making right. that it was really attracting a lot of top-level teams and a lot of top-level gyms. Um, so we just kept, you know, designing and re remaking. And, you know, the Gen 5 just came out about... I don't know, four months ago. Um, and it's got some new attachments to it that we're not quite done with yet. 
Uh, also, I have more features than the one we have because yeah, I think we have been to four. Got a box squat piece for right. for doing concentric eccentric breakups on the squat. It's got a donkey calf piece to it. Um, it's just got a lot more pieces to make it more versatile, especially for people that have home gyms and might have limited you know areas. Um, but the point is, is the reason that all that's capable, and I think a lot of exercise companies end up falling out, is because they hire engineers versus real lifters. So what ends up happening is you got all these guys who can design awesome shit on paper, but they don't understand how it's supposed to work or feel. Right. Well, if you got a world class lifter, you know, this broke multiple world records that also knows how to design equipment and make it perfect. Well, mm-hmm. you got kind of a kind of a niche in the market that nobody else has because everybody else looks at it as a profit margin and they don't really understand what the lifter's supposed to feel or how it's the machine's supposed to react. Right. So we're ahead of the curve on that particular stuff. For for um you know advanced lifters or just any, any anybody lifters or athletes like how often do you recommend them using your belt squat for for maxes or, or, or speed day and like when it should be in their program um you know like how how, do, how would you go about using because obviously I see you regular squat but then sometimes I see you on the belt squat so how do you kind of go sure. about that. Well, it depends. It depends on what your goals are. Mm-hmm. I think for the average person, if they just want to be strong. Um, you know, they want to do the back squats all the time, but maybe not create the mileage that the traditional powerlifting style training would come in. You probably want to use it every other to every third week. Right. Um, we use it pretty much every workout in some way, shape, or form. And a lot of it is is that if you look at the average population or even the average lifter, you're probably going to see that 50 to 60% of what either gets someone to retire or get someone to stop training so hard is their lower back. Right. So how you keep all of the other musculature at 100% and still have a squat pattern without having the vertebral spinal compression? And the answer is the only way you can do it is to train with a bell squat. Right. So I firmly believe by 2014 when I was breaking the raw world records, you got to remember that I was already at the top of my class for almost 10 years at that time. Mm-hmm that I would have never maintained that level that long. Uh, when I retired in almost 2018, I had been top two to three in the world, if not the best in the world in my weight class for 14 years. Hmm. Now, the point is that I would have never hit those numbers if I wouldn't have lasted long enough. And the trick was, I was ha- as I got older, I had to figure out a way to get my legs and my hips and my hamstrings stronger without beating up my spine. Hmm. So... That was one of the major reasons I designed it and started messing around with belt squatting so much. And then I thought that people would wake up and listen once I hit the 832 all-time world record raw and then the 865 and a half world record raw. And what I started to realize is that from the advent of CrossFit and a lot of other, you know, social media platforms, training has just gotten more stupid <laughs> in the past 10 years than it got smarter. Right. You know, I think even though some of his ideas are a little outlandish. I think he was on the right track of getting people to train smarter from about 1996 to 2005. And then something happened, which the only thing I can line up is CrossFit. And everybody started to thinking that you didn't have to train smart to get better. Right. <laughs> if we look at guys, and I'm not like busting balls and calling names out, but if you look at some of the top lifters in the world today, like Larry Wheels and a couple other dudes, they train like they're fucking idiots. People copy them too, and I'd be like, "Yo," and, then they copy them. <laughs> and I'm like, and they "You ain't even them. taking the same shit they are." You <laughs> hey. Well, I mean, not that. 
that, you take the drugs away from it, Larry Wheels has accumulated more injuries and mileage than I have in my entire career. And he's, and he's my age. He's the same age. He's only 26. <laughs> yeah. And he's already tore his hamstring multiple times, tore his pecs. I mean, the point is that he's just he's a great bottle rocket to watch, but the bottle rocket just, boom, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you really haven't seen him. I, I don't follow him a lot, but I haven't seen him post anything berserker in a while. He does a, He's doing that arm. I think he's probably hurt lower body-wise. So I think he's doing that arm wrestling stuff. He's doing so much because he gets money to not live. Like yeah. he gets money to doing all this stuff with Thor and yeah. them, like doing just random stuff. Because I don't, I don't. I think with him, it's it's one of those things where he's figured out how to make it monetary. But in my opinion, and like I said, this is just my opinion. I don't take anything he does or says with any validity because he no. didn't last long enough. Right. He could just now be starting to hit his prime numbers. Right. And if he was trained smart, he would be hitting prime numbers another 10 years. Right. I mean, I did my last competition when I was 38, and he's already having to bow out. He's only 26. It was the same issue that I had with people listening. And like I said, again, I'm not busting balls, but I think this is a valid point. It was the same issue that I had with people listening to Chad Wesley Smith. The motherfucker retired at 28. And he's telling us well, how to train. I'm like, dude, 28 is when I broke my first world record, and I was already top five in the world for the last five years. No injuries. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, nobody wants to hear that. And the reason is because powerlifting tends to attract slightly uneducated people <laughs> that, don't, that don't have a long timeline. Right. You know, they think that they're done by the time they're 35. I mean, look at Chuck Vogelpool. He mm-hmm. hit his biggest numbers when he was 40. Yeah. And, I mean, at least from all the books... That I read, like a lot of the Russian books, they talk about for lifting sports, it can be much different, especially with powerlifting, than like sport athletes, where your prime can be in your mid thirties a lot of the times because it takes a while to accumulate that type of strength. And then it's so a lot of people outside looking in don't know how much technique. I feel like I'm like a rookie with everything is for because I was played basketball up until basically a year ago, and now I'm just getting to I'm like trying to learn how to free squat now. It's like. What the hell? You know, actually caring about my bench, it's like... <laughs> and like I said, I'm saying it's people, but people don't have that long-term thought process. Yeah. You know, and that's what really hurts them because if you're not in the game for 10 years, 10,000 hours, you're not going to master jack shit in the right. strength world. Right. You know, I mean, if you look at... Let's, let's just take it in a different sport completely. What's the youngest guy to win in the past 20 years in Olympia for bodybuilding? 32, 34. Right. Why? Because you're not going to be 22 and win the Olympia. You can't get big enough, fast enough. Right. No matter how you have, yeah. you need muscle maturity. And the same thing applies when you're trying to get super strong. But, you know, I mean, that's what I'm constantly trying to drill into people's heads before I'm just tired of doing it anymore. Right. Is just telling people, listen, you need to set yourself up to last for 10, 15 years, and you will be one of the strongest guys in the world if you have the raw talent. But if you don't make it that long, you're never going to see your true potential. Right. Um, for raw guys versus gear, like I just had my first competition, my first one in May, and the next one I'm going to do is December. And I'm like watching my squats, and I'm like, I feel like I can't even judge my strength of my of my lower body because. I'm squatting like I'm in gear because I've watched so many gear videos and I was box squatting so much when I did when I was doing sports. So now that I'm doing raw squatting, it's like, shit, I got to like watch videos on dudes that are really good that just do raw. So it's like, 
you know, how often would do you have? I'm sure you have plenty of lifters that are under you that are roll. Like, how often do you have them free squat for max effort and dynamic day versus to a box? I, I rotated as much as I did when I was in gear, but yeah. I was kind of a hybrid gear lifter. We would do this. We would go completely raw week one. Mm-hmm. Then we would do minimal gear week two, and then oh. we would do full gear three, and then we would go back to roll. And the way we looked at it was, is if we're going completely raw, we can't hit the numbers we can hit in full gear. So it's almost a neurological deload, but a muscular max load. Right. And then we hybrid week, which was kind of in between, you know, a little bit of gear, not a, not a ton, but still enough raw and enough gear to have a blend of hybrid. And then the next week would be full powerlifting, like suits, everything. And what we did, what, what that did was they gave us a break from each individual sector, but put us in different sectors of lifting. So I was training 30, 40% of the time raw when I was squatting 1,200 pounds in gear. Right. <laughs> I, did seven, I did 765 in plate weight and five chain on each side in a fucking belt. To a 13 inch box in 2009. Oh shit. <laughs> so that's what, 50? Right. So the point is, is um, I, I did that a lot, but a lot of guys now that are in gear, they don't have sack to train like that because to them it's ego. Hmm. If you look at like raw lifters or, or gear lifters, a lot of that's uh, ego driven. It's not that they're super strong, it's that, that they have great technique, and when they get out of the gear, Everybody compares, well, why can't you do that raw? And then they get pissed off that they're posted. Right. The point is, for us, it was completely different at the time, and our main end goal was the same. So my point is, is like when I was breaking all the raw records from 2014 to 16, 17, um, I would put briefs on every other week. I got a pair of briefs, so maybe I should do that. Yeah, just to keep the mileage down, and then I would pull the box out a little more often. But the point is, is that when I was getting super strong in gear, I was still hitting raw squats here and there. So I never lost the feel of that. Mm-hmm. Plus, I started in the USAPL where the depth was just totally insane. And the the, uh, the judging was so difficult that by the time I worked up into the pro ranks of the equipped stuff, everything felt high because I was <laughs> used to going three low parallel. <laughs> right. So the point is, is um, I think it depends on how many years you got behind you. Mm-hmm. I think... You know, if you don't have very many years behind you, you might need to free squat a little bit more just to have the feel. Right. But for guys that were tenured like me, squatting more like that all the time was just going to get me out of the sport faster. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like, because I don't really have any injuries. I don't even have injuries from when I was playing basketball. So it's like, it's fine for me. It's just like trying to, like, well, how much should I box squat versus how much should I free? It's like hard to think of that calculation in my head because I'm still trying to like, Listen to guys like Donnie were like, oh, you should be your own coach. And I'm like, ah, I get that. But it's like, but I also feel like when you have a coach, you can kind of like, because when I, I was doing, you know, Joe, I'm sure you know Joe Lasco. You know, th- that was that was who I was. Uh, he was doing my online program when I was doing basketball my last year. And it's like, I sometimes will go back through our programs and look at notes and be like, okay, why were we doing this at this time? And like, I've taken like, okay, this is what I like. This is what I didn't like. So I'm like, well, I feel like the same thing probably should be done for powerlifting, right? Like you should, you should be under someone that really knows what they do because it'll help you learn. Okay, if you're asking questions, they're open to that. You can understand why the why's behind the things you're doing instead of taking all the guessing out. You know, well, it takes a special person to self-analyze what your weaknesses are, right? And base training on what's going to make you perform better versus what you like or don't like, right? I don't do things I fucking like. Yeah. I do things that work. 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah. Like today, I posted, I did, I did Paul Anderson squats, and they were a big portion of my lifting when I first got strong because my legs were so fucking strong that I had to catch my posterior chain up. So if I did Paul Anderson squats for, you know, every other week for, say, six weeks pre-contest prep, my lower back and my positioning posture was so good hmm. that I could actually show off how strong my legs actually actually were. Right. But the point is, I fucking hated doing them. <laughs> right, right. They made me feel like shit. You know, 30% or 40% of my max was brutal. <laughs> right. So it was ego check by a shitload, but the right. point was they worked. Right. And I kept a lot of that shit on the DL and didn't show a lot of people that stuff because... And, you know, looking back, I probably should have because people weren't, didn't have the balls to do it anyway. Right. You know? But I always selected lifts I knew made me better versus stroke my ego. Mm-hmm. Now, every three or four weeks, I had what I called testing lifts. Like, for instance, when I benched uh, 844 in a shirt, <clears throat> 844 in a shirt, I knew that that bench was close. If I could do between 415 and 430 plate weight with a double orange band, which is 200 pounds of band tension on the bench. So 630, 640 raw at the bottom. Mm-hmm. I knew if I could hit that, that my bench and a shirt was 200 pounds more than that. Mm-hmm. Based on many years of training, I also had certain chains and certain bars that would let me know where I needed to be and it would relate to well to the bench. But I think a lot of people, you can't use box squats to relate to free squats to relate to others until you have many, many years and many cycles under your Yeah, body. I learned that. <laughs> I learned that. <laughs> yeah. Because the timing of free squatting is so much more hamstring glute dominant. And the reason that Louie prescribed it so much is because you can squat heavier and harder off of a box than you can free because the stretch reflex in a free squat creates a lot of damage in the in the in the glutes, hamstring area, and rebounding of a free squat because it's all soft tissue at that point. So if you're thinking about lifting in suits, in theory, the box squat works much better because the suits and the knee wraps stop you in the bottom and you have to recoil from a pressure point. But in the raw squat, you have to make that pressure with your muscle tissue. And so it has a different feel. That's why I feel like I created a great advantage coming from equipped lifting, breaking records there to raw lifting because I train raw every 30, 40% of the time. And I also got used to handling extreme weights in my hands so nothing felt heavy to me raw mm-hmm. you know like when I would do eight when I did eight sixty five and a half and just knee sleeves which was, at that time you know the world record was my old 832 so I was breaking it by 30 pounds that weight on my back did not feel heavy because I had squatted 1200 in gear right but I was so responsive and rebounding and all those years I got strong in gear I was training raw too the point is is like I don't think when you first start that you can use a lot of box squatting because the timing change is so drastic. But then once you master how to recoil out of a free squat, then you put the box in to stop so much damage. Uh, and squat. Okay. Um, how much? It, uh, how important is it GPP with powerlifters? Like how many days a week? Like sled work, farmers walks, you know, stuff like that. It's fucking you. Um, I mean, and that's what the whole reason. That I developed the winning warm-ups. Mm. Um, I started to realize that after I squatted a maximum weight, I didn't have that 600-pound plus wall bench because I was fucking tired, mm. right? So I started. That's how originally the warm-ups came to be was to actually <clears throat> be more fit. Where I think 
people drew up like Louis writings and people talking about GPP is the fact that GPP is not another workout. GPP is how dense your workouts are. So my point is, if you were to come in and lift with me and see how much we get done in one hour, you would fucking lose your mind because we don't rest. Hmm. In the old days, you would do a heavy squat and you'd rest four to five minutes to do a heavy squat. Dude, we're lucky to rest two minutes between heavy attempts. Like for max effort? Yeah. So like you only rest like two minutes. You're saying like two, like you're going for a single, you only rest like, you don't rest like five to seven. You take (laughs) Oh, shit. Here's what you have to ask yourself. Are you building new strength or are you testing your old shit? Now, if you want to test your old max, by all means, rest five, six minutes. Right. If you're trying to build something new, why give yourself that much of an advantage? Because right. what if you're used to only resting two or three minutes and then you really want to test your max in six or eight months? Don't you think you'd be stronger? Right, yeah. yeah. So the, the point is, is that people, especially the use conjugate system, is they're constantly trying to break PRs versus trying to time when they're going to peak at their next contest. Mm-hmm. They get too caught up with breaking gym PRs. So what I did was I always put my training in a deficit. So it's, it's the same thought process you're having. Why would I do four sets of 25 dumbbells, four sets of 25 pulldowns, and four sets of 25 tricep pushdowns in 12 minutes before I max bench? It just seems like it would ruin my max bench until you have to squat a world record before you max bench. Right. And then nothing can damage you. And then when you have all that rest in a contest, you're a fucking Superman. So another, uh, I can't think of the word, but it's just another way to make it, you know, like a overstimulus, but you're taking, you're, you're building something way harder than it has to be. Then it gets a context and then everything becomes really, really, really easy. Exactly. Mm. You have to ask yourself every day when you walk in the gym, are you... T- testing what you already have or are you building something new now a lot of times that's how long you're letting your body recover Mm. if you don't let it recover it has to adapt you can make your workout shorter more effective both hormonally and recovery wise Mm. and then you're actually making more and more quality tissue building a higher level gpp but the problem is again is that it takes patience and time to get strong in a deficit with low rest periods so people say, fuck it, I'm going to be strong tomorrow. <laughs> right, right. Um, what Now, another thing is like with people like, like me, like I'm trying to gain size. How many workouts, like do you, do, you do, do you prescribe any small workouts or would you just make the workouts that you already do, like those four major workouts a little longer? Like how do you go about that? And also like, you know, like how long are those small, small workouts if you do do them? Yeah. You know, how intense are they? So think about it in this perspective. Let's let's look at the question. And like I said, I'm not busting your ass, yeah. but let's look at the question here. We're thinking more. We're thinking more workouts. We're thinking longer training to gain size. Right. So you tell me what really gains size. What gains size is recovering and building. You don't get bigger in the gym. You get bigger recovering. So I trained really hard this morning, right? And I'm mm-hmm. sitting here and my hamstrings are sore. My legs are sore, my, my back's sore. In three days, my legs are stronger. Right. But they're stronger because of those three days I recovered. Right. So the point is that everybody that wants to get bigger and stronger thinks it's what you're doing in the gym versus the other 22 hours outside of the gym what you're doing. The eating and sleep. Making naps, making sure your sleep is 100%, high, cool contrast, 
staying out of stressful environments to where your body can recuperate and not burn poor selections of hormones and stress hormones on other factors like girlfriends or kids or mm-hmm. school. And I'm not saying that those things aren't possible, but you got to remember that a lot of the big Soviet lifters that we, you know, come to idolize, like, you know, like KK and all those other guys, dude, they didn't have real fucking jobs. Right. A lot of those guys that we used to train against that were from the Russia were mafia kids that never had to work. So my point is that we don't have to worry about money. Let's look at Ed Cohen, for example. Ed Cohen never had a job. So if you were five foot four and weighed 240 and had hands the size of a 350 pound man and didn't have to work and all you had to worry about was training, how strong would you be? <laughs> right. <laughs> so he was smart because here's my point. Coming back to your original question is how you're training or how much volume you're getting in is not going to make you bigger. What's going to make you bigger is optimal volume and tons and tons of recovery. That's what makes you bigger, and that's the hardest part that people will never get. And I can say that a thousand times, and you can go on the internet tomorrow and look up and how to get big arms, train them five times a week. <laughs> right. It's not going to work. Right. Um, you know, so my point is, is that what I think we all should do is step back and look at how much quality information and work we're getting in, and then decide how much recovery that's going to take and what we're willing to, to give up to get bigger. Right. So when I was at my biggest, I was 317 pounds. I had 33 and a half inch legs. I had 21 inch arms, and I was sleeping 13 hours a day. Damn, 13 hours, shit. That's what I had to do to weigh that. Now I'm gonna give you some really fucked up shit, right? So one off season, I lowered my sleep down to an average person of eight hours. You know, I started working a little more. I had just done this big contest. <laughs> Like, okay, I'm going to step up my work and fill up my bank account a little bit. This was like 2009. I'm 316 pounds the day of the meet. Weighed in at 308, put on another 6 or 7 pounds, 24 hours. Lifted, broke the all-time world record and squats is 1197.6. And I took three weeks off, not of training, of sleeping 13 hours a day. And went down to 8. Started working a little more. I weighed 292 in three weeks. Oh, shit. I was eating exactly the same, everything. But see, when you sleep, you slow down your metabolism. Mm. So if you're eating a lot and you're sleeping a lot, your metabolism is going to slow down so you put on size. Oh, wow. Bro, I'm sleeping like five, six hours. <laughs> see, if I, you're not going to be able to get, you're not going to be able to get the size you want sleeping like that. You're right. going to have to make sleeping a massive priority. Right. Um, as far as uh, like your hypertrophy work, do you do... Uh, a lot of like drop sets, cluster sets, stuff like that? Well, um, it goes in phases. And the answer, I guess, in, in, a, in a nutshell would be no. The reason is because when I do hypertrophy work, what we will do is we try to figure out a way to gain more muscle tissue with less neurological damage. So mm-hmm. if you're doing drop sets, you're already tired. Your technique's probably going in the shitter. Right. And you're probably going to get injured. So the easiest way to put on a lot of quality muscle tissue is to increase time under tension. So what we'll do is we'll do tempos. Mm-hmm. So if you want to say get really big, bench, you know, get a big chest bench pressing, don't worry about bench pressing 500. Try to do 405 for sets of six with a 5-5 tempo. <laughs> now you're going to damage a shitload of muscle, much more than if you try to just hammer 500. Mm-hmm. But what's everybody think? Well, if I'm bigger, 
then I'm stronger. But we know that's not true because bodybuilders aren't the strongest. Right. I mean, at my strongest, at Ronnie Coleman's strongest, I would kick his ass at every lift. Right. How is that possible if he has more muscle more muscle than me? Because it's not about muscle. It's about Ronnie could probably do a couple of things way higher time under tension than I could. Right. right? So at our strongest, mm-hmm. I'll bet you Ronnie would take, say, 315 on squats to do more reps than me. Right. But then once we get past 585, he's not going to do more reps than me then mm-hmm. because the intensity is too high. The point is, is that we, we missed that time under tension is a huge factor. I actually had a huge conversation about this with Flex Wheeler. Me and him are pretty good friends. Mm-hmm. Flex Wheeler was arguably one of the best bodybuilders in the 1990s, uh, never winning in a, probably one of the first guys that's so symmetrical to never win an Olympia, which he probably should have. But he came, he was in his prime right when the Ronnie Coleman era started, mm-hmm. and then everything became size-oriented. But long story short, Flex Wheeler is the best bodybuilder, the highest-regarded bodybuilder that I personally know. He never did bicep curls with more than 25 or 30 pounds, and he had 21-inch arms at 230 pounds. Because he did all that tempo work? He was doing everything super slow. <laughs> put on muscle tissue without damaging everything right so my point is is like if you want to get bigger you got to start thinking longer lactic acid threshold timing is about 45 seconds so if you look at the classic bodybuilder set let's look at a set of 10 if you do a set of 10 with a 3-3 tempo that's a 60 second set right instead of how much weight do you have on the bar right so how much can you do for 60 seconds, 45 seconds to 60 seconds? That's going to gain you more hypertrophy than how heavy you can go. Mm-hmm. Um, how often should you do heavy weight, low reps or low time versus lightweight for high time or high reps for abs and obliques? Well, your abs and obliques are more stabilizers <clears throat> and lockers than they are like movers, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look as a powerlifter or even a bodybuilder, you don't really flex your abs to move. You flex your abs to lock your rib case to your hip. So in theory, what you would want to do is get really strong at bracing. Mm-hmm. Now, squatting and deadlifting are forms of bracing. They're not isolated to the abdominal muscles in and of themselves. And that's why Sue McGill and a few handful of other guys and Stan Efforting are constantly talking about planks. And it's because planks especially under resistance, teach your body how to lock down, almost bear down, and lock the ribcage to the hips to not absorb energy. Mm. So what you want out of your abdominal training is to transfer energy from the top to the bottom, right? So if I'm holding a deadlift bar, I want all that energy to go to my feet. I don't want to absorb anything, Mm. right? Because if you absorb energy, you're not transferring energy, right? So you want to turn your core into a piece of steel versus a piece of jello. Because jello will absorb, right? If I punch a big block of jello, the other side doesn't feel anything. Right. But I can punch a brick, and that brick's right against your chest. All that energy goes right through the brick. Right. Does that make sense? So your abs training needs to be heavy bracing more so than crunches or things of that nature. But a lot of people train abs like they're a muscle, like a bicep. But they're, they're really more of a bracing muscle. So I would say that if you're trying to be a powerlifter and be super strong, you're going to need to do a lot of weighted type uh, abdominal exercises. If you're trying to do more aesthetic type stuff, you want to do more vacuuming 
where you make your weights as small as you can with your abdominal muscles and then actually train them that way, much like Arnold Schwarzenegger and a lot of those other guys used to do. When and what is your opinion on standing abs versus you know like planking, side planking, all that type of stuff? Um, like what what's that kind of? Do you have a ratio? Or are you just like, well, today we're doing this and tomorrow we're doing that? I think that has more to do with law of accommodation. I think that you just can't. You you get really good at planks, you need to just start standing standing stuff. If yeah. you're really good at standing stuff, you need to start planking. You'd be surprised. I can always tell when I'm throwing new exercises into the mix, which now gets really hard at 42. I've been trying to conjugate for 21 years, but um, my muscles respond very quickly. But then they also adapt very quickly, meaning i got to change my stuff up quite a bit to keep the body guessing, so to speak, and also reduce the mileage. But the point is is that um, you want to find ab exercises that challenge you with minimal uh, energy versus you get so good at something, you got to do it so hard right. that really it, it takes away so much from other things and it's no longer helpful. So what I what I say to that is try to find things that are not you're not good at and get better at those and stop putting so much energy into things you can already do fairly well. Um, how much uh, saw uh, connected tissue work do you do? You know, banded pushdowns and banded leg curls. How, how much of that do you do? Quite a bit, but. You know, I built such a solid base when I was younger that I don't really need to do a lot of that shit anymore. I do a lot of, because of the winning warm-ups, we do so much specific volume. We do band push-downs. We do lap pull-downs with bands sometimes. We do all kinds of shit. We just do it different so much. But think about how much connective tissue strength they're building if you're doing 300 reps of stuff before you even lift. <laughs> right, right. You know, I think the connective tissue really responds much better to volume. And I think there's even papers on it that state that bodybuilders, in some respects, have better soft tissue than powerlifters based on the fact they do more volume. Right. Because I, I guess if they're doing such high volume, it finally will get, some of that blood flow will get into the connective tissue at some point, right? Yeah, I mean, you're, well, you know, your connective tissue is mostly fed through the lymphatic system. The lymphatic system is fairly heavily, you know, operated by volume. You know, on repetition. So, if you're moving a lot, the lymphatic system works better. If you're stagnant or you're not doing a lot of volume, then your body doesn't. So, you know, that was another reason why we started the winning warm-up process was because when I started doing all this research on soft tissue density, everything started coming back to volume. So, I said, well, shit, if I got everything at 25, that's a dump. That's a decent amount of volume all the time. For for speed work, um, how often do you have your lifters do um, like true speed work? You know, nine triples in the bench or twelve by twos versus doing um, like five by fives or six by sixes. Like, how do, how do you make the decision whether they should be doing just one or the other, or do you cycle them through for everybody? In my opinion, I don't think speed work never ever needs to be over three, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you why. If you take a timer and you look at a three rep max or a three-rep speed set, you're going to match about the same amount of time it's going to take to do a one-rep match. Right. So for people that want true power, you need to be down to the threes. The reason, and like I said, I don't really study what Louie and them do anymore. I know that some people have switched over to fives for speed work, mm-hmm. but that all came from that all came from the equip lifting. Because think about how long it takes to lower an equip right. bench. Right. It takes longer, right? In a, in a raw yeah. bench, you're just like, Boom, right? <laughs> right, right. In a raw squat, you're not you're not letting it go. <laughs> right. You know, there's only a handful of people that are like Shane Hammond and can just drop in, <laughs> in raw squats. I mean, you look at 
you even look at my own training partner, Vlad. He doesn't drop into 1150 raw. Right. He squeezes in there and gets the perfect position to hit. My point is, is that those higher rep sets came from people wearing equipment, which it takes longer to do. And for the bench versus the deadlift and squat, how often do you use bands versus chain or a combination of both? I think those are just mix and matches. I think you okay. just you want to try to keep those as blended around as possible so mm. that the body has to adjust to a new stimulus constantly. Mm. Um, I think the deadlift tends to be a little bit more sensitive because it involves hand strength, and hand strength tends to be a big wear out of your central nervous system. So the point is, is like bands and chains, I think are very effective to building up your deadlift, especially if you're weaker in the middle of the top. Mm. But the big thing is, is they still are one of those particular uh, ailments that you have to make sure you don't overuse or the body gets adjusted to it too fast. Right. And the reason, I mean, honestly, dude, like what I'm telling you, like all this shit's theoretical because nobody's in their prime long enough to give you solid concrete advice. If anybody says they have everything figured out, they're completely full of shit. Right. Be the first one to tell you he has everything figured out. I don't think he knows what day it is. <laughs> so the point is, like, you, you have to understand that everybody adapts to training differently. Everybody will need something at different times based on biomechanics, age, previous backgrounds, everything. You know, guys like that train three ways constantly, like Maddox, for example. If you look at Maddox, when I first met Maddox, Maddox never trained with bands. He never trained with chains. And if he did, he was doing it completely fucking wrong. And when he came to the gym, we taught him how to do it right. And then he went back utilizing some of that stuff and smoked his old world record. I saw that, yeah. Easily. And the reason wasn't because bands and chains work. It was because they were a new environment for his muscles to have to try to adjust to. He was used to free weight for so long that adding those little tiny things just bumped it up another 5-10% easily. Um, what was I going to say? How often do you change your bars when you guys are lifting for like speedways? Will you stick to a bar like, okay, I really suck at this bar. I want to do another three week, three weeks with this bar, or will you just switch to something no matter what? I try to never really master one bar or stay in a system too long to where I'm really good at something, because then what you start realizing is you lose the potency of that exercise. Mm. So if you're not good at it, that's good, especially if it's not a, like a straight bar squat. Say your safety bar squat is your worst, right? You're really good with the straight bar. Hopefully that's the case. If that's the case, you keep the safety bar away just long enough that every time you use it, the body's like, holy shit. Right, right. You train it, train it, train it until you're good with that bar. What you're going to find is its ability to help your straight bar is going to go down vastly. Right. So you have to keep all these stimulus that's almost far enough away that every time you use it, it's, it's almost a semi-new stimulus. Mm. And that's where everybody gets fucked up because they were, oh, I want to get better at this because I'm worse at it. That's not a bad idea, but the point is, is that is that exercise a stimulator or an ego booster? Mm-hmm. You want to try to keep most of your exercises stimulating to where when you do them, it creates new progress. The only way to do that mm-hmm. is to make sure it's not done all the time. Um, I see that now that you're in your off season, you, you're doing jumps and stuff like that. And coming off the meet, that was like me and my training partner. That's what we started doing. First, we just did like sprints and jumps to kind of keep it a little fun and just a break from the bar. Now, how often in regular training? Because I talk to guys that even come from us, so they'll be like, yeah, I don't know what Louie's talking about. We didn't see many 300-pound dudes jumping on boxes. Like, how often and how important do you think 
besides the speed work with a bar, should you be doing explosive work with jumps or anything like that, especially the bigger you are? Well, I mean, you know, look at Verkashansky's work from the Soviet Union. I mean, mm-hmm. he's the godfather of plyometrics. We had a lot of talks back and forth <clears> before he passed a couple years ago. Um, the shock method is one of the most underutilized Western, underutilizing Western tools that, that we have. It's so misunderstood because people won't pick up a fucking book. <laughs> right. um, you know, they think if they're not lifting a barbell that they're not working out. And mm-hmm. that's a very, very wrong statement. Um, on the other hand, it's kind of good that people don't do plyometrics because most people aren't strong enough to do them anyway. Right. Um, you know, I was jumping down off the back of my truck. We measured it, it was 39 and a half inches. So I'm doing a 40-inch depth jump and then responding to that jump by jumping up to a box. Right. But I squat 800 pounds and I weigh 260. Right. So it's one of those things where when I hit the ground with, say, seven, eight, 900 pounds of force, my body can, can handle that. The problem with plyometrics is we use them too soon with our younger athletes right. when they really should be utilized with the top-level athletes. And that's what Bert Kishansky talked about all the time. But the shock method is super huge. But again, you have to be conditioned enough and you have to be strong enough to utilize them. Bert Kishansky wouldn't utilize depth jumps with athletes in the Soviet Union until they could squat 2.5 times body weight. Which for a raw squatter in any weight class is still pretty substantial. Right. Yeah. yeah so um, the point is, I think the shock method, probably long after I'm gone, is going to be reevaluated, refound, and people are like, "Oh, this is a new way to train." Like <laughs> fucking Matt was doing that back three years ago. <laughs> but the, but the point is, is that type of rebounding really gets you used to heavy squats because people don't realize how much reactive strength it takes to take three and a half times your body weight and reverse it. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, do you do anything in your warm-up besides the winning warm-ups? Like, I don't know if you're familiar with FRC or anything like that, or even on your off days, do you do any type of direct mobility work to address any issues on how your body moves and operates? Do you, have you ever done any of that? Yeah, we've done plenty of that. I mean, when I did my internships at IPI, we had inter- we had you know contracts with the Pacers and the Raptors and the Jaguars. Okay. We were doing a lot of those guys' off season training, and that was my first. This was two thousand two. My first statement into or my first recollection that I remember us doing dynamic warm ups, which were like stretch movements instead of just static shit. So yeah. I do a lot of sauna training. Um, I do a lot of P and F stretching with bands mm-hmm. in the on the off days. But really, I think the most important thing you can do is just stay moving. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think doing specific work, unless you have particular nagging areas, are going to be big. Now, here's the other thing that really everybody wants to hear, is by the time you're 20 to 22, your flexibility is pretty much set. I mean, you can, you can polish it more, yeah. but you're not going to become a fucking chump. Damn, I'm 20. <laughs> right. You're, you had to have started that stuff many, many years ago, and that's why the Soviets would put a lot of their lifters into gymnastics and tub light classes at like three and four years old, but because of the time they're 10 to 12, they have 70, 80% of their flexibility that they're going to achieve. Right. I also feel like you get bigger, you put on that muscle mass, your ligament tendons get thicker and everything, and it's harder to just like move and operate the same as, you know, like the only dudes I ever see that are super flexible are like martial artists or gymnasts, like you just said. Yeah. yeah, that's just because they're maintaining range of motion. It's not because yeah. they're stretching. Right. Yeah. You know, I think 
stretching is vastly overrated. I know Charles Bullock was stretching. So the point is, is I, I think that there's only a certain point in which it actually really makes any valid change. Um, and sometimes can do more damage than good. Um, the strongest position a muscle can be is in position. That's when it's at the strongest. So if you're constantly stretching it, maybe if you're trying to do that for general health, that might be a difference. But if you think that's a performance enhancement, you're better off doing stuff like winning warm-ups and things like that and just breaking away the looseness through mobility or um, and range of motion, not necessarily direct stretching. Um, how, how much, and if you do like taking pre-workouts and nose torque and stuff and or and do you tell your lifters to kind of keep away from it once it starts getting closer to the meat so you get like that over stimulus when you have it on the meat because that's kind of what i did and i kind of like like i went away from pre-workout for like two months out from the meat and then and nose torque and then when i went to the meat it was like awesome and i still haven't been taking pre so i'm like should you kind of go with that now being that you're such a big proponent of how much sleep you should get I feel like you're about to tell me you need to sleep a lot. But, like, do you tell people, like, yeah, it's okay to take this or, like, how often you should take it? Yeah, I, I, you know, I did I did a YouTube video on pre-workouts and energy drinks not too long ago. And my point is that if you're having a problem gaining that arousal to train, you probably are looking at everything wrong. Because what ends up happening is when you try to ramp up a workout because you don't have the energy – you should be asking the question is why don't you have the energy? Hmm. A lot of times people are taking pre-workouts and energy supplementation because they don't have their diet and their sleep in, in check. I haven't taken anything to preload a workout. I would never use nose torques at meets very often. Really? None of that shit because I learned to dial everything in. Because what if just for sake of saying, what if you just don't have nose torque at the meet? And now you're used to that and you think you need it. Right. I was always a minimalist. I wanted to go to a meet and have everything I needed, but if something wasn't there, it didn't fuck my day up. Hmm. Um, so I was never a nose torque guy. I didn't like walking up and I had to balance that was 1,200 pounds and my eyes were watering. <laughs> my head, the crying shit. <laughs> I mean, it's just stupid. I can understand that maybe for deadlifts a little bit. Yeah. We don't need as much, you know, spatial awareness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one thing where if you're not, if, if going to a contest and getting yourself into fight or flight mode, I know for me, like I was lifting weights that could fucking Kill make you. me not walk right again. <laughs> right. If you be ramped up for that, I don't know what to tell you. But <laughs> I can tell you, I mean, you know, do need nose torque in World War II when they were getting ready to get their body. <laughs> right. So it's one of those things where I think, we, you know, most lifters just become such mental midgets that they have to have everything perfect. And I used to watch these old timers when I was coming up, you never saw Eddie Cohen sniffing nose torque before he dealt with 900. <laughs> right. Right? He walked out and was just so focused that everything did what he wanted it to do. And that's what I, I guess I get at is you got to learn to turn all that shit on internally and not need an external environment to do that. But if there would be one thing I could tell the younger beginning lifters, stay away from energy drinks, stay away from pre-workouts, and make sure that if you're having problems getting energy training, it's a lifestyle choice of either – you're going to bed too late, you're not around blue light, you're around blue light too much, you're not getting enough magnesium before you sleep. All of these factors which are not letting your tape almost reset itself, to kind of be honest. So um, those things to me are gimmicks, and I, I hate it because a lot of the people that I'm even friends with, they know they promote that shit because they're sponsored by it. But at the end of the day, 
a lot of these top lifters don't use any of that. Mm -hmm. Um, what about, um, when it comes to gear for like the raw, like person, same thing, like, um, do you have the belief of not wearing your knee sleeves, your, um, wrist wraps, stuff like that every time you do max effort or you kind of like, no, you can wear it when, when you're doing it all the time. I, I always used it as a mental thing. I, I would not put my knee sleeves on until three weeks out from a contest. Okay. Because then when I put them on, it felt like my body was fucking go time. Right. Like, what, three weeks before the meet was going to be serious shit, and I felt like I wanted the extra protection, but it didn't, if you get so used to having them on again, there again, they're not a training advantage anymore. They're almost yeah. like a Clutch. disadvantage, because if yeah. we're out or they don't feel right or whatever, you know, like, I, dude, the first world record I broke, I, I, it was neoprene Tommy Kono's. They didn't give you anything. They probably actually took away from your spot. <laughs> you know, but putting them on, my body mentally was ready to annihilate an all-time world record. So the point is, is, I think that stuff's more mental. I mean, obviously the material has gotten better in the last 10 or 15 years, but at the end of the day, I would try to stay away from a lot of that stuff until you get closer to contest so that your body starts to kind of feel like it's an advantage whether it's mental or not. Um, what's your opinion, like, I, 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 there's so many guys, like, it's like that Larry Wheel shit, where they do, like, oh, I just did a beltless, blah, 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 and I always feel like, well, why wouldn't you, if you're trying to do max effort, try to do the weight that's actually your max, so, like, what's your opinion on, like, should you really do beltless work with really, really heavy weight, or should you wear the belt when you're trying to do heavy weight, like, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I think there's some validity on some aspects of doing stars and different maxes with different environments, i.e. Okay, no belt. But I will say this. Once you get to a certain strength level, the risk-to-benefit ratio to some of that is fucking dumb. There's a lot more weak guys that say, preach that shit, and I'm like, yeah, because you deadlift 315. That kind of makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, if you're deadlifting 350, who cares? But if you're deadlifting yeah. I think that the point of no return of that is just ridiculous, right? So, to me, there's a certain point where you get so strong that the body's just not really meant to be that strong, no matter how strong you are. Right. I would say that'd be somewhere in the 900-pound deadlifting range, 500-plus bench presses, 700-800-plus squats. Once you get up to that level, the point of no return is really high, and the when you do get injured under those kind of weights, those injuries don't heal fast. So, for me, it's always setting up that to fight another day, it's not necessarily about the number anymore. It's about getting away with training at those ranges and skate free or injury free. It's not about PRs anymore. It's about sustaining the volume and not getting beat down. You know. Um, what's your opinion on wearing Olympic lifting shoes for squatting versus Chucks or Reeboks or the No Bulls? Like, you know, because Louie always kind of talk about the goddamn ten set squat shit, but it's like. I've squatted in both, and I do like, you know, you being able to push the floor part more with the chucks, but I feel like as I've gotten stronger, that's true for the deadlift. I don't know in this, like, I'm like, I got a pair of Olympic lifting shoes, should I just throw them on and be like, let me see? I, you know, what's your opinion on that? Well, a lot of people don't know this, but I actually did my master's thesis on elevated heel and flat sole shoes. <laughs> really? <laughs> now, here's the deal. Here's what we found, and here's why I'm very anti-heel shoe. Okay. Um, the heel shoe and the flat sole shoe have some distinct differences. Now, here's the thing. The heel shoe was originally developed to catch cleans and snatches. Mm 
Right. They have to have the heel because they're trying to get their ass as close to the floor as possible to reduce range of motion so that they didn't have to pull the bar up as high. Okay, now when you do that and you raise the heel, the heel lift is meant to let the shin go over the toe with the heel still in contact with the floor. Now, if you're squatting with optimal form, not like what a lot of these jackasses are saying on the internet right now, where you're trying to keep as vertical of a shank as possible to load the posterior chain instead of throw it all on your knees mm-hmm. like an idiot. Right? You see hill tears. <laughs> right. The, the heel shoe is already going to put you in a prime position to let you go forward more than sit back. Right. Right. So the point is that if, if you're squatting correctly, you should be learning to push your knees outward and maintain lateral foot pressure to squat. So what we found with the shoe was that even with 500-pound squatters, which was pretty good for a, a, a science study, what we found was that the Olympic lifting shoe and the flat sole shoe with moderately skilled lifters did not change shank angle. So it didn't really affect the shank angle a lot, maybe a little bit. But what we noticed was in the floor, the foot pressure was drastically different. There was much more lateral pressure on a chuck or a flat sole shoe than there was the heel shoe because the heel shoe had a rigid edge, meaning that when you pushed out on a heel shoe, it wanted to tip. Mm. So your squat more vertical. And when people look at a squat, they're seeing an up and down motion, but really what you should be doing is a lateral pressure motion that allows the up and down function to happen faster right. or better. So the point is that the heel shoe is going to put you in a more anterior lean position because it was intended to catch cleans and snatches. The flat sole shoe is going to allow you to push out and have more lateral pressure, which we know lateral pressure in the foot is going to increase glute medius, IT band, and other small muscles to integrate into the squat pattern therefore not making it all quadricep dominant. So if you have very, very long femurs, a heeled shoe is going to feel better because it's going to put you in a natural position, which is begin to be knee over toe or knee parallel with toe in order for you to squat. But if you are perfectly built or optimally, more optimally built to be a powerlifter, the flat sole shoe should allot you a better squat position if your form is better. But lateral pressure is huge in the squat if you, one, want to squat a long time, and two, you don't want to have the squats damage your knees, and you want to apply the pressure over the entire body. Right. So what I would say is that the only thing you'll choose are good for in powerlifting is the bench press. <laughs> what? Wait, is that a joke, or is that like it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, put fucking heel shoes on to squat, you know, <laughs> to actually lift. But now, here's the thing. I do toy around with them occasionally in the gym with different lifts just for a different feel. Again, law of accommodation. Mm-hmm. But what I find is that if you decide that heel shoes are your thing, and that's fine, and you don't want to listen to what I'm saying, that's fine too. Right. But at least master the flat sole before you go to it so your foot placement and your body position is a little bit better. What I find is that people that all they've ever known for years is the heel shoe their squat form doesn't look nearly as good as a person that mastered a flat sole. Then if you decide you want to go to a heel and it feels more comfortable, go ahead. But the point is is that you weren't born with a heel, so you shouldn't need it to be strong. I feel like it it becomes a crutch where where people end up, I think that's another reason why you see a lot of people dumping the squat. Because if you do that with a heel toe, you'll just crash to the ground. And like you said, I'm guessing you guys probably use force plates to measure that force reduction. 
Well, if you're telling me you can produce more force and you got more lateral pressure, that means your knees are going out. That means they're safer. So why the hell? Like, you're saying the fancier version, I would say the shittier way, but I'm like, yeah, that probably sounds why I always said I don't think I would use the Olympic lifting shoe. I've never seen somebody get hurt pushing their knees out too hard. <laughs> right, 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 right. You always see somebody getting hurt when their knee goes over their toe and they round their back. Mm. So if you're putting your foot in a position to more likely let you do that, why would you do that? All right. You know, I understand why Olympic lifters have to do it. They have to go ask the grass to catch shit. Right. It's a bad position, but why would you mimic those motor patterns when Olympic lifters don't ever last more than one fucking gold medal? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, those types of lifting techniques are not good for longevity. They're good to break world records in the snatch and clean and jerk. You know, and the only, the only lifters that were Olympic that ever lasted past one true medal run were the old Eastern blocks because they had a great athletic base before they started Olympic lifting. Right. You know, Alexia was, I think, three Olympics. Right. When's the last time you heard of a fucking American wanting to make it? <laughs> right, right. The last <laughs> medal runs. You know, I think Klokov, you know, he was probably one of the better ones in our generation. You know, Klokov, he only made it to, like, silver medal one time. Right. And now he's not even ranked. You know, he never made it to a second Olympics. My point is, is you're develop, you've developed the shoe to catch a clean and jerk and a snatch, and you're going to use it for a back squat for maximum poundages. It makes no sense. What's your opinion on doing high bar versus low bar? <clears throat> well, again, it depends on torso, but there's no reason why a person shouldn't be stronger on a low bar squat. Hmm. You just shorten the distance in your spine, right. making the ability to lean over a little bit better hmm. without rolling all the way over. The only reason somebody's going to squat high bars because they're quad dominant and their squat form sucks ass. Ooh. I mean, really. You, you ever see somebody squat high bar and it looks good? It looks terrible. <laughs> now, I'm sure that there's always exceptions to the mm. rule, but the point why would you put yourself in a worse biomechanical position to lift maximal weights? Right. I mean, let's look at the top 10 all-time squatters of all time. None of them squat high bar. Right. You look at Milanachev, low bar. Lillibridge, low bar. Uh, Vlad Azov, low bar. I mean, dude, we can keep going and going. But the point is, is like, the only reason most people squat high bar is because they don't have enough fucking rear delts to hold the bar right. in a position, and they don't have the shoulder mobility to hold it in a low position. Me, it's the rear delts. I'm not thinking about it. It takes a time for rear delts to grow. Right, but, yeah. I mean, the point is, is that in my opinion, you can always lift more low bar if your form is right. Right. How much neck work do you do, and how much do you do like in in the workouts versus just like you doing like iron neck or something banded neck stuff like? We, how do you do ton of, we do a ton of trap work because I think it really helps the deadlift posture point. But you don't need to do direct neck work if you're squatting the stakes bar constantly. Right. You know, I remember my neck getting so thick when I could squat over 900 with a with a safety bar. When I could do that, it was holding from my neck. That's when I realized there was no real neck training. I remember the first time I met Charles. Charles was like, "Holy fuck, dude, your neck is huge! How much, how much neck work do you do?" I'm like, "None." And he puts me on this physio ball where they're doing these bridges on the back oh, of yeah, your head. Oh yeah, seen that. Yeah. I'm 310 pounds and can do it better than the kid. Guys are like 160. <laughs> oh, and he's shit. like, "Do that. Do direct neck work." I'm like, "I squat with 900 with a fucking seat." <laughs> Trying to think of anything. Are you, are you in a rush to go? No, man. I'm just going to 
to go lay down. I'm going to try to bench. Uh, I got to bench 225 for 45 tomorrow. I'm going to take a For 45? God damn. Yeah, I'm going to work out. And then I got to take a deload next week, and I'm going to try to bench 225 for 60 in two weeks. Oh, shit. So do you I'm have – Do you, you don't have – Oh, sorry. Two. Go ahead. You said what? That's right. My best is 62, but I did that way in 305, and now I went 260. Oh, wow. Well, now, when you, like, now that you're not competing, like, what what are your, like, strength goals? Are they more hypertrophy-based? Is it is it more just health? It's honestly just experimentation and making sure whatever I'm saying, whatever I'm doing is, is 100% as good as I can say it. Because, mm-hmm. in my opinion, is that as soon as you stop training, maybe I don't compete anymore, but I compete against myself with a lot of shit. Right. As soon as you at least stop touching the weights is when you become in my opinion, disoriented with what reality is. Hmm. So what I have found is a lot of these researchers that maybe were strong back in the day, hmm. but they're not strong now, they start losing reality of what's real and what's not. They start studying really fucked up things. Right. And it leads people down a lot of rabbit holes because they lost reality. They didn't touch the, the iron anymore. So for me, I don't need any more accolades. I did enough of the records, but for me, it's... Can I hold on to what I did in my early 30s and I'm in my early 40s now? I have zero fucking injuries and I can still outlift 95% of the people they call themselves power lifters. <laughs> and I'm doing it at an older age and I have zero miles. Right. So if that doesn't speak on what I do, I don't know what will. You know? But the point is, is, for me, it's just constantly challenging. I like to challenge myself. I like to be in the middle of all the shit. I like to experiment i don't necessarily really like to go insanely heavy anymore even though i will like last week or the week before i did a 500 pause bench after the workout and it was still easy i know all that's still there it's just to me now it's just trying to stay together and not do not creating any injury injuries and still be able to train as hard as i can and maintain as much muscle as possible and still have fun with it you know how much uh reverse hypers versus like 45 degree back extension or good mornings do you have people do well it depends some people are good at some and bad at others um so usually the ones they don't like to do i make them do more of right. uh, but again you start to find that that accommodation law starts to sneak in too so that's why you have to constantly mix it up so i don't think any one of those are better than the other it's just which one are you most comfortable with probably don't do that as much right <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, we gotta um, my uh, Ed, we're 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 looking at trying to go up to Westside and go to Row and go to Lead FTS and and your gym sometime in July, hopefully this oh, cool. this summer. So be be good to meet yeah. you in person and and you know look like a bitch yep. next to you guys and live. <laughs> we're in Atlanta. Oh, okay, I'm actually going down to. Uh... I'm going down to Georgia, not this weekend, but next weekend. I'm doing a seminar for a big school system that's right on the Tennessee line. Oh, shit. It's probably three hours north of you, I would say. You said how many hours? About three hours north of you, I think. Okay, okay. Yeah, because it's ten hours. It's ten hours from me <clears throat> is where I got to go. I can't remember the name of the place, but... Okay. But, yeah, I'll be down that, I'll be down that way in a couple weeks. Well, maybe you just drive a little further. You stop by. <laughs> I'll, I'll, probably, man, I'll have to get my ass back here and work. I'm, I'm so busy now. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, 
But uh, and then um, shoot, that's actually. What are you doing in December? Uh, I don't know now. Right now, it's still pretty far out, but I should be around. Cause I, I have the the seminar that I did. It was like a conjugate seminar for like only just all conjugate coaches. I had it last year. This will be the second time I do it. And I do it at the rack at my gym again. So um, if you're interested in coming down, shoot shoot my yeah. way. We'll probably we're probably gonna do it on I want to say the 11th. So it's like the second week of December. So far enough from okay. Thanksgiving, far enough from Christmas. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll definitely keep you. Yeah. Know, keep me in the loop. I'll try to see what I can do. Yeah. So I think. Um, Nate's gonna come down. Um, I don't know if you know Jared or Bird from Bird Sports Performance and Jared of Explosive Mechanics. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I, I know more faces than I know names. <laughs> or well, Michael Fahey, the one that did, did Westside. He, um, of course, you know he interviewed you. Um, he came last time. He's coming again this year. And then another one of my buddies, Blake Bernard. But I'm trying to make it big because it's like there's nobody else that's doing this shit. So I was like. Fuck it, I'll do it. <laughs> you would have been better off doing that type of seminar about 10 years ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. There were a lot more people around talking about it. There was a lot more buzz. Yeah. There were a lot more people hitting those numbers. And, you know, the big problem is, like, Louie and some of those other guys pissed people off so bad that <laughs> you know, got pulled away from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's how, that's how I was like, Man, y'all make it hard for people to to even be in the country because y'all be pissing people off. Like, why are y'all so angry for? <laughs> well, I mean, the problem is you got to understand is like a lot of those guys that started that particular system, you know, dude, they're just and it's not that they're not well read or they're not educated. They're, they're just fucking they're fucking hillbillies, dude. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they they don't think outside of the box. Like Louie, if Louie truly wanted people to train the way he trains then he would have donated more of his life to academic studies and got a PhD and went and wrote books, credible books. I'm not saying his books aren't credible, but they're not credible to the research community. Right, yeah. Right, and he never wanted to jump those hoops. He thought it was bullshit, whatever. But I'm telling you that, you know, the guys that are willing to put six years of their life into books and jump through the hoops in the academic world, it makes a big difference, and that's why... Louis, for a lot of the scientific crowd, never got any credit for anything because right. for him it was all anecdotal. And if you read a lot of his PLUSA articles from say 1993 to 2005, and I, I was there in those times, dude, they were half bullshit. Mm. He would take dudes that had horrible squat suits. He would maybe tweak their form for a couple of weeks, put them in a better suit because everybody that was at Westside would be sponsored by Enzer, mm-hmm. put them in a better suit and they break a 150 pound PR in the squat and all of a sudden it's because of how they train. Right. <laughs> and I'm not saying that some of it wasn't the training. It was, but the point is is that Louie never learned to to state all the variables. Right. So what it's hard to do <clears throat> is create the huge problem of his idea of what worked was full of shit because when you go to school and you go, you learn how to try to manage variables in science, and Louie was never good at that. Right. And that's what really hurt his credibility with a lot of the research crowd of saying, well, I got these many lifters to squat this and that, whatever. And yeah, maybe some of it's the, the methods, but a lot of it was other shit too that was just never stated. Right. So it, create un, it creates this problem of, hey, I don't really, you know, my numbers you can't really trust. And that's 
that's kind of what hurt him in a certain respects. You know, he, if he, I think if he would have taken some of his younger years and focused more on academics, I think he would have seen a different different level of his appreciation to the rest of the field. But you kind of can look at it now and really look at it from once my generation's gone or we're old enough that we just don't give a fuck about training anymore, um, Louie's going to be disappeared. Yeah. His shit ain't gonna last because it because it never it never did enough to the academic side to really be something that got set the timeline. Yeah, on top of and like you said, he pisses people he, off. <laughs> yeah, he should be. But the point is, is think about this: and nobody that ever trained at Westside, other than me and Dave Tate and a couple other real selective guys, ever went and did anything with that knowledge. Right. That's just that, that, and that's kind of why I kind of split away and started training more tactical stuff. And, you know, I still post powerlifting shit too, but it's just one of those things where you know it, it's sad, but uh, the conjugate system just doesn't have a grab like it used to. Yeah. A lot of it's just because it, it takes too much thought to learn how to train smart, and people just don't want it. They don't want to do it. They right. rather, just, well, I'm going to put the work in. If I don't get strong, I'm just not strong. Right. Versus always a way to get better, but maybe you're not smart enough. Yeah, I, mean. I I think the other like the willingness to take the time where you're not going to get strong overnight, the willingness to try to find the answers and not just be settled with like, well, this is what I know now. And I think there's a lot of strength coaches like that where it's like, well, this is what I know, and the results will be the results. Where it's just like, you know, if you a lot of the guys that are deal with just the athletes, the ones that a lot of times use the consciousness, a lot of them, you know, they're constantly using a laser, they're constantly using a vert mat, they're using max effort. So, like, you know if you're getting better, your athlete's getting better, and then it's like, it puts you and the athlete on the spot, like, okay, why are we not getting better? Let's find the reason why. I think a lot of people, especially with social media and stuff, can hide behind smoke and mirrors and using fucking ladders and cool videos to make it for the fact that they're not really that good. <laughs> That's the sad part, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you got to remember, like, a lot of the pro athletes and a lot of the strength coaches, they can be heavily limited by the staffing that's on the team. Like, yeah. if the pro, you know, you, you are really a paid physical therapist babysitter in the pros. So, right. the guys that actually have the golden jobs that could, in theory, work with the top-level dudes and see insane strength gains are never really allowed or want to do the job at its full peak because the injury rate's too high. And it's all about what they can do on the field. Right. You know, I mean, yeah, the, the, the spectators and people watching on TV, oh, this guy, you know, I don't know, fucking Larry Allen squats 700 pounds. Okay, cool. It doesn't fucking matter if he can't tackle. Right. Because he torqued his fucking knee doing a squat. <laughs> right. You know, so, and, that, and that's the other thing is really if you look at strength training as, whole, as a whole, it's really not popular. I yeah. mean, we think it's popular because we like it. Yeah. But if you get to gym, look how many fucking people don't even generally work out, let alone lift weights. Right. Do you really think anybody cares about somebody being strong? <laughs> that was a real big reality to me was um, I was walking around the Arnold maybe, I want to say 2016 <clears throat> or something. I hadn't, I hadn't retired yet. I was still at my peak strong strength-wise. And I was walking with Eddie Cohen around around the Arnold, right? Because me and him have been friends for like 20-something years. And nobody, there was only maybe 15, 20 people that came up to Eddie knew who he was. He broke, what, 75 more <laughs> The point is, is that 
nobody fucking cared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, now if, if Eddie would have been some top pro bodybuilder back in the late 80s, he would have been a fucking, like a Lou Ferrigno or something. He'd have been a fucking swarm. Yeah. And the point is, is that most people that are into lifting weights, they only care about aesthetics. Right. conjugate fit in that. Yeah, because, right, right, right. Yeah, there's probably some advantages to training conjugate as a bodybuilder, but the point of it is, is we all know that bodybuilding is probably 75% genetic. And the other thing of it is, is all they got to do is put the volume work in, and they got it. I mean, I'll go back to my buddy Flex Wheeler. He was 14 years old. He grew up in a small town in California, Fresno. And him and his buddies at 14 years old decided they wanted to lift weights to pick up chicks in the mall. He tells me this story. If you haven't seen it, go on my YouTube and look up the Flex Wheeler interview. And we're talking, and he said, yeah, one summer, so from like June to the end of August, his arms went from 14 to 16 and a half inches in one summer. <laughs> and all of his friends were doing the same workout he was doing, right? It was a couple, two, three times a week arm workout. And none of them grew more than a half of an inch. His grew two and a half. And he knew at that point he had something special that right. nobody else had. Right. So, long story short, it moved him into the gym and other pro bodybuilders found out who he was and he exploded. But the point is, is that the average person is going to have to train way longer and way harder to make any of those proper progresses. So smart strength training, even if somebody is involved in strength training, tends to never be an issue because that's not their goal. Right. Of us because we want to make it scientific and we want to make it better and we want to make people stronger without hurting them. But at the end of the day, you're talking about a fraction of the percentage of the population that give a fuck about lifting, and then take that fraction and divide it by like a hundred thousand, and those will be the people that care about getting super strong right. without getting. <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, just finish it off. Just tell uh, people where to find you. You know, plug everything that you do. Yeah, so uh, you can find the website at winningstrength.com. No spaces or anything. We got online coaching there. We got manuals there. We got equipment there that we custom make by hand, all USA Steel. Um, we have the Patreon channel, which people can come on and ask me any kind of questions. Um, the YouTube channel is Real Matt Winning. We show a lot of the exercises that we use. Um, I just don't give out as much of the information anymore because – People just abuse it and don't use it. So if you really want some feedback, you know, come on the Patreon. Um, what else do we do? That's, that's listed pretty much. We've got apparel on the website. Uh, the Ludus Magnus Gym, the gym actually has a page on Instagram as well. Um, and then the YouTube channel has been blowing up pretty good. It's winning strength with no no spaces as well. We I think we got almost 300 videos in here now. Like just small tidbits I mean if somebody was patient enough and looked through all those videos and took notes they probably could lay out a really good fucking training program you know? <laughs> uh, how big is your gym? Uh, it's about 4,500 square feet oh so yeah that's like the size like so my boss originally bought the upstairs 45 and then later he like rents out from the person that's next door same thing that 45 like but we deal with a lot of athletes so it's like we need turf and shit you know so it's like different but um Oh, another, one more question. With lifters or athletes, what's your opinion on having a monolift versus walking out weight? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I, if you asked me that 10 years ago, I'd be like, monolift, true and through, like, mm -hmm. no. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, if you really look at most athletes, 
they don't squat heavy enough to eat a monolith. Right. I mean, how many of your athletes, you train athletes in your gym, how many of them squat over 650? Nobody squats over about 354. That's about it. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want to, it's like, that's almost sacrilegious to put that kind of weight even in a monolith. <laughs> right, right. It's a curse. <laughs> example, I squatted, I squatted 826 in the USAPL with no monolith. Right. Then I found a monolith, <laughs> and then five to six years squatted 1,200. Yeah. But the point is that you kind of almost need to earn your fucking right. <laughs> you know? So I'll, but, I'll stay squatting without the monolith for a long time myself. <laughs> well, is it, is, when you get really good at walking out, your ability to set up in a monolith long-term, obviously not right off the bat, <clears throat> is so much better because you learn to conserve so much more energy. Right. That it's so much easier to squat a big weight in a monolith than it is walking out. But you almost set yourself up at a disadvantage if you don't walk out. I would say the first two to five years that you train, you should walk. You should walk okay. out. Okay. Right. Well, man, it was a pleasure having you on. Appreciate it, man. All right, brother. No problem. <laughs> All right. See ya. See ya. <clears throat> Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram. That's K-A-L-I-L underscore S-H-E-R-R-O-D. If you're a coach or you know a coach that you want to hear from or you would like to be on the podcast, just send me a DM. If you're an athlete that has any questions, send me a DM. Um, And there it's also where I'll announce um, the next podcast. Um, And then subscribe to my YouTube page. It's still my name, Khalil Sherrod. And I'll be posting the live uh, actually face to face because we did this on Zoom as well on my YouTube so I'll put that on there I'm trying to try to do a better job of putting just more content on that as well um, and make sure to like, subscribe uh, share it with your friends, leave a review uh, and that's it remember, stay clean peace <laughs>